The reading is taken from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 to 14. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness? Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law, and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Heavenly Father God, we thank you and praise you that you are a good God. Thank you that you have made yourself known through your word and through your son, Jesus Christ. Heavenly Father, I pray that as we read your word together, you would convict us, you would be speaking to us, your Holy Spirit would be prompting us in ways that we need prompting, and would be comforting us in ways that we need comforting. Heavenly Father, help us to enjoy reading your word together as we see Jesus Christ walk off the pages. Lord God, we thank you for your goodness to us. Thank you for your word. We pray that you be with us now in your mighty name. Amen. Right, Galatians 3, 1 to 14. Now, before we start tonight, um, I think it's necessary to have a very quick recap of what we've been looking at over the past few weeks with Andy Buchan. Uh, Galatians, the long and the short of it is, Paul, the author, the Apostle Paul, is not impressed. His language is very clipped. He doesn't give much of a warm introduction. Do you remember Andy said that? Not like he does with some of his other letters. And right from the start, he makes his intentions very, very clear. And throughout all of this, it would be helpful if you had Galatians 3 open. That's page 973. And please follow the notes in your handout. That will be quite helpful. He makes his intentions very clear right from the start. So I'm just going to do a very quick recap. So um, keep up with me and trust me. Um, chapter 1, verse 6. I am astonished, Paul says, that you are so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. That, in a nutshell, is Paul's complaint. For some reason, Galatian church, you are not following the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ anymore. Galatia, um, chapter 1, verses 11 to 12. You're not following the gospel that I, Paul, an apostle, gave to you. Sent by Jesus Christ himself. This gospel has credibility and you're not following it. Chapter 2, verse 15. You're trying to justify yourselves. 
That is, to make yourselves look good in front of God by trying to do things. You're aiming to achieve your salvation. You're aiming to get to heaven through trying to follow the law, which you can't keep instead of following Jesus Christ. That's what Paul is telling the Galatians. In short, Galatians, you're you're not following the gospel. You're not looking to Jesus for your salvation. You're following yourselves. You're looking to yourselves for salvation. And if that's the case, if it can be that any one of us could possibly achieve salvation for ourselves, then chapter 2, verse 21 rings true. Christ has died for nothing. Frankly, what's the point? No wonder Paul is astonished by believing that there may be something other than Jesus, even if it's 99% Jesus and 1% something else, then you are fundamentally denying Jesus' death as having any value at all. I'm astonished, says Paul. He's right. And it's with this very thought, looking at the cross, that Paul pivots into the next section of Galatians that we're going to be looking at tonight. And if you thought Galatians chapter 1 and 2 were a bit shouty, in the immortal words of Al Johnson... You ain't seen nothing yet. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Oh, foolish Galatians! Who has bewitched you? Now, if you are wondering in any way how Paul was feeling, this sentence clarifies it for you. What are you guys thinking? He says exasperatedly. Let's read the rest of this. It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? It's relentless, isn't it? This bit in Paul's argument, these five verses, are in many senses a bit of a break from the fairly linear pattern of his prose up until this point. Here, he seems to sort of rally himself a little before he heads on again into more argument. And it reminds me very much of a half-time team talk by your coach when your team has been doing really badly. Now, I'm not going to lie, I'm not the most sporty of people. I know that will shock you, but I'm not. I have, however, sat in one half-time team talk in my entire life. I was 11 years old in my last year at primary school, and it was my first and last ever rugby match. It scarred me for life. It was a stupid game. And just by the very fact that I was in on this talk, in that I was actually on the team, it made sense that the first half hadn't gone particularly well. My PE teacher always used to say, or if you're on the team, we need an extra two good guys for counterbalance. So we were getting tanked. We all trudged in at half-time, dejected, broken, shattered, and the half-time team talk from Mr. Morgan was retrospectively hilarious. His face was all red. He had this vein just at the top of his head, which would sort of protrude under his, under his hairline when he was especially disenfranchised with us. And I remember vividly him stomping around this minuscule changing room, ranting and raving. But what was most intriguing was that after a good few minutes of talking about what we'd done wrong, what we needed to put right, what would happen if we didn't get our act together, his calmness and logic would eventually crack. And he would launch into a five-minute tirade of exasperated rhetorical questions. 
What were you thinking? How did you expect to make tackles when you were on the ground? Did you think that the other team were going to roll over and give you the ball? Was giving away 40 points in the first minute ever going to help? How can we expect to win matches when you play like that? And as we know, the thing about rhetorical questions is that they are, in many respects, unanswerable. Because they're deliberately stating the very obvious. And we also know when a teacher goes into that mode, we've all been there as students, teachers, you've all done it. When you hit that exasperated rhetorical question mode, no one answers back. I distinctly remember Adam Jones, the fullback, and the token wise guy said cheekily at one point, well, sir, no, shipping 40 points in the first minute was never going to help. I never saw Adam again. And if I can be so bold and in no way disrespectful, this is what Paul is doing here. But not in an uncontrolled diatribe like Mr. Morgan, but in a very controlled sense of invective with well-intentioned exasperation. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing by faith? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Paul is taking time out of his linear argument to heap a whole dose of painful observation on his readers in Galatians. To see, A, how ridiculous their position is in the light of the truth, and as a consequence, B, just how foolish they are. And if you were to bring all these questions together into these first five verses, the main complaint of Paul here is in verse 3. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? And this is our first point of three tonight, because of course, the obvious answer has to be no. The Christian life is begun and continued by God's Spirit and not by our works, point one. You see, here's the problem, as we've been looking at over the past few weeks. You have these Judaizers, Jews who call themselves Christians, telling the new Gentile Christians, those who weren't Jewish to begin with, to come and be circumcised so that they could be real Christians by joining in with the old Jewish customs. That's very much something done in the flesh, isn't it, circumcision? You need to add to your faith, the Judaizers were saying. In short... You need to do something extra on top of what the Spirit has started in you. Now, bear with me, just a side note at this point. This is very important. This will be helpful for us as we go through this passage. Last week, we were looking at Andy's idea of works of the law versus faith in Christ. Do you remember that? Works of the law versus faith in Christ. Well, here in this passage, Paul brings in new language to say exactly the same thing. Here, we see the language of the flesh versus the Spirit. So the flesh language of chapter 3 and following is exactly the same as the works of the law language in chapters 1 and 2. The same with the spirit language here, exactly the same as faith in Christ language in chapters 1 and 2. And you'll notice here in chapter 3, Paul interchanges them. Um, We see works of the law and with language of the flesh. Likewise, language of the spirit and faith in Christ. There's nothing in that, it's just Paul's rhetoric. And it's just helpful to note that as we go through this, it makes it a little simpler. So then, Paul isn't introducing a new idea. He's beating the same drum over and over and over again. You are either Christians by works of the law or by faith in Jesus. It's either by the Spirit or by the things you do in the flesh. There are only two ways to live. Meaning then, going back to what Paul is saying here in verse 3, 
that the work of the Spirit mentioned here is our faith in Jesus Christ. And this is really important. Because here's the thing, and it is very subtle. These Judaizers weren't necessarily denying that the Spirit started off something good in the life of the Christian. They weren't necessarily denying that the death of Jesus did have some impact on a Christian's life. They were saying it wasn't enough. Hence the question, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? You see, the Judaizers were saying, sure, having the Spirit in you thanks to Jesus' death is great. That's where we started. But that doesn't get you to heaven on its own. Oh, no. You need to do lots of other flesh-like things to be able to make sure that God really has you. That's what's being preached. And the devastating thing for Paul is, this is what this fledgling church is listening to and believing in. And as ever, by the fact that God's living word, his Bible, is written first to the readers of the time and now to us today, Paul turns the lens on us. Because, you see, it may be that we are sitting here as Christians tonight thinking, I am absolutely rock solid on the fact that Jesus died for me and I am justified. Meaning that I am made right and good in God's sight. The Spirit has started life in me. I'm very thankful for that and I'm very confident in it. Great, that's fine. But I guarantee that most, if not all of us here who love Jesus and would call ourselves Christians, at some or many points in our lives, do think that keeping the law of the Lord and doing good things does actually get us closer to Jesus. That it does actually have some impact, whether large or small, on the way God views me. A bad day is when I've done bad things and God looks at me in a bad light. A good day is when I've done good things and God looks at me in a good light. And how do we know that this might be the case in our lives? I think a good test of this is by looking at how I view the day ahead of me in the morning and how I view the day behind me at night. How do I look on the day in the morning? Do I wake up, look at the day ahead and think, I am going to work my way through this day? determined to do good. I need to nail this day in terms of my actions and my reactions and my godliness. And I will know today has been a good day because I've done good things and God loves it when I do good things. I'm going to strive to get this day right, especially with that one sin I keep doing. I'm going to stop that definitely once and for all today, no question. And how do I look back on that same day in the evening? Do I look back at it in utter despair because everything I strive to do just didn't quite come off? I got frustrated with people. I reacted badly. I found myself to be inherently lazy. My anger spilled over. I got things wrong I don't usually do. Old besetting sins get hold of me. I did fall into that same temptation. And I crash on my bed emotionally drained, physically exhausted, and spiritually gutted. Because I did not do well today. Couldn't do it. God must love me less. I have fundamentally let him down. Or the converse is true. This day was a particularly good day. I did most, if not all, of what I wanted to achieve. I did well in my reactions. I got praise from people around me. For this day, at least, I managed to walk away from my serious sins. And I was genuinely calm. And I float to bed emotionally high, physically excitable, and spiritually proud. Because I did do well today, didn't I? God, you must be so proud of me. You must love me more today than you did yesterday. 
In this manner, our lives looked like spiritual yo-yos. Crashing one minute, sky high the next, playing an exhausting game of spiritual Jenga, where I build up my status in front of God, only for it to collapse one day in a fit of desperate sin, and I have to start all over again. Or do I wake up, and do I turn to prayer, and say in the silence of the morning, Lord, I am such a sinner. I am really going to need help today to live like you. Help me with the things you know I struggle with. Forgive me for getting things so drastically wrong yesterday. Help me to know that your son, Jesus Christ, has lived the perfect life. And you see me in the light of his righteousness, not my own. May I trust that you have this day in your hands and help me to live, albeit stutteringly, a life of love and goodness, resting on the fact that Christ already has me safe and God the Father can love me no more or no less than he already does. And do I go to bed after a good day or a tragic one and say, Lord, I am sorry that I messed up? I am so thankful that you kept me today. Or thank you for small victories over big sins. Or forgive me for falling into the same sins. Thank you that as I go to sleep, I know that my status before you has not changed. And you love me no more or no less than you did this morning. That is the mark of someone who lives in the Spirit. What does Paul say to those who don't? You are foolish. Who has bewitched you? It was before your very eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Who has hypnotized your minds, in other words? Who has brainwashed you? What has possessed you to think that God, having started righteousness, that is goodness, in us, by giving up his own son to death, does not also continue it in us? It's foolishness. Foolishness to think that you would want to live an emotionally fractured life when you can live a life of freedom and joy and stability. In fact, Paul likens this way of living to slavery. In Galatians 5 verse 1, it was for freedom Christ has set us free. Not emotional fragility and wondering whether God's going to accept me or not. Stand firm, therefore, and don't submit again to the yoke of slavery. Don't go back to this way of living that is freaking you out because you are never quite sure whether you've done enough today and you never know which God you're going to end up with at the end of the day. It's foolishness, Paul says, to think that if Jesus, God's son, had to go so far as to die on a cross for us, something that has been clearly portrayed in front of our eyes, that the single most incredible love and sacrifice would have to have our pitiful works added on top. Christ is at best so disappointing if that's the case. In short, we are saying, Jesus, you started something you couldn't finish. Let me take over. Holy Spirit, you started me on a path to perfection, but, but, but let me complete it for you. The hubris, the foolishness. Having begun in the Spirit, are you now being perfected in the flesh? Of course you're not. Having begun in the Spirit, we are now perfected in the Spirit. It's a rhetorical question because the answer is so obvious. And we know this is true because of the other really important question. It's in verse 2. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? The works of the law here are to do with our obedience to or our works in accordance with the law of the Old Testament given to Moses, summed up in the Ten Commandments. 
In short, verse 2, did you Galatians receive the Holy Spirit by keeping the entirety of the Old Testament law, or did you receive it by faith? And in verse 5, did he, that is God, who gave you his Holy Spirit, do so because you kept every single written law in the Old Testament, or through him by faith? What's the answer, Paul? Verse 6, Abraham. What? Verse 6, just as Abraham believed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. This is our second point of this evening. We are now sons of Abraham through faith and not through works. Verses 6 to 9. And as we read this next bit, we find that not only is Abraham the example of the answer to his rhetorical questions in verses 1 to 5, but it's also a brilliant move by Paul. Paul is like the supreme chess player. He's heading off a new play that his opponent is looking to make. And the play was this. The Judaizers, as we were looking at, weren't necessarily denying that Christ had some value. They, they, they were just saying it wasn't enough. They were saying you needed something else. Specifically, that you needed to be circumcised. Now, why were the Judaizers going on about circumcision so much? Well, it's because they were saying that you needed to be engrafted into the line of Abraham. That's what circumcision was. Proof that you were accepted into the line of Abraham, and therefore sons of Abraham, and therefore inheritors of the promise of Abraham. Abraham, then, is at least as equally as important as Jesus, if not more so, they were saying. And if you're not circumcised, if you're not shown to be physically in the covenant lineage of the great Jewish patriarch, Abraham, they are saying you're not a Christian. Now, let's take a breather for a moment. There is a lot in this Abraham thing. Why would the Judaizers try to make Abraham so important? Well, in many ways, it was because he is. Let's turn back to Genesis 12 for a moment on page 8. Um, and see where all this starts. This is really, really important and is worth our time, otherwise we won't understand what's going on. Genesis 12 is where we read, for the very first time, God dealing with a man called Abram, a pagan man who didn't know who God was. And this is what we read of his conversation between Abram and God. It's on page 8, and it's just the first uh, two verses of Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you and will make of you a great nation and I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Match chapter 12, that bit, with chapter 17, don't feel you need to go there, of Genesis where God changes Abraham's name to Abraham which means the father of nations. We see very clearly that the whole nation then of Israel was to come from this one man, Abraham. That's what's going on here in Genesis. God chose this man to be the mighty patriarch of a whole new nation. And out of this line was to come the Jewish people, the Israelites, those who were to receive God's blessing and be God's people. And not only that, but this people were to be inheritors of a great promise. Genesis 17, verse 8. And I will give to you and your offspring, Abraham, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. This new nation, then, were to be God's people, inheritors of a land for eternity with God himself looking after them. This was God's promise to those who were descendants of Abraham. But... What does this all have to do with the New Testament Gentile Christians? 
Well, the truth of the matter is we need to be sons of Abraham. In Ephesians chapter 2, verse 12 to 14, we read this by the same author, the Apostle Paul. He writes to the Gentile Christians in Ephesus saying, Remember that you were at that time separate from Christ. You were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. You were strangers to the covenant of the promise, having no hope and without God in the world. There seems to be a problem then if we are not sons of Abraham. Because, as Paul says in Ephesians, it's physically impossible for us to share in God's promise. Because that's where it originally came to, Abraham. Somehow, then, we need to be able to claim Abraham as our father. And this is what the Judaizers were waving in the face of the new Gentile Christians. Saying, look to us. We have Abraham. You're not a part of the promise. Indeed, you can't be saved. And here's your answer to your conundrum, they said. You need to be circumcised. As per the rule of the Old Testament law, then you can be inheritors of the Abrahamic promise. Then you can really be saved. Then you can finally, really, truly come into God's promise. And Paul says in response to this, yes, these Gentile Christians need to be sons of Abraham, but you have got it so wrong. Yes, it is important to be a son of Abraham, but you don't need to do it yourselves and prove it through your own works of circumcision. Because, going back to Galatians 3 verse 7, know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. Read on with me from verse 8. The scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, that is those who aren't in the physical descendancy of Abraham, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. What is Paul saying? We are sons of Abraham because we are people of faith and not people of the circumcision. How does that work? Because Abraham was a man of faith and not of the circumcision. You see? Abraham, the head of this great blessed and chosen nation, which was to carry God's light to all the other nations, could not have been made Abraham were it not for him believing in God. Abraham did nothing to achieve Abrahamness. Abraham did nothing to ingratiate himself to God that made God choose him above everyone else. Indeed, Abraham did not keep the law in order to be found righteous because there was no law. Galatians 3.17 reminds us next week the law was to come 430 years later. Abraham believed in God and that was credited to him as righteousness. Not works. Not circumcision. Not keeping the law. But belief in God. That's it. Paul is saying to the Judaizers, can't you see that being a man or a woman of God was never about keeping the law? It's only ever been about faith in God. That is simply trusting in this good God that he is who he is and that he will do what he promises. Nothing else. And as we read the story of Abraham in Genesis and the entire story of the people of Israel, we see very clearly that God is who he says he is and who does exactly what he promises. But how is it that we become sons of Abraham as Christians? Well, because in the words of John Piper, we are chips off the old block. 
because we are like Abraham in that I too am a man of faith. I have faith in God. Abraham had faith in God. That faith was counted to him as righteousness. It is also counted to me as righteousness. Abraham and I look the same. We are like father and son, like a chip off the old block. In short, I have copied what Abraham has done and I get the same outcome. We've both had faith in God and we are both counted righteous. There is no law. There is no circumcision. There is only faith in God. I am a son of Abraham because I am a man of faith. Not because I am a man of law or of circumcision. That's what being a son of Abraham meant. And that is the death knell for the Judaizers. Who thought they were really sons of Abraham because they were born into his line. Ah, it's not about outward signs or keeping the law of circumcision or even being physically born into his line, Paul says. It's about faith in God. And that is also the death knell for the legalistic Christian. <laughs> it's not about works, Paul says. It's only ever been about faith in God. Because we have faith in God, we are sons of Abraham. And because we are sons of Abraham, we are also inheritors of the promise of Abraham. Verse 9. So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. We are allowed to inherit the eternal land promised to Abraham in Genesis 12. Now that was partially fulfilled in the land that Israel was was given to the Jews. But it will be finally and fully fulfilled as a new creation in heaven for eternity. Us standing with God himself. We are sons of Abraham through faith, not through works. But this brings us to our final question of the evening. How is it that righteousness can be credited to me? How is that possible? What has to happen for this to be true for me? How does someone who has done nothing for salvation, how does someone who has done no good in front of God, in other words, someone like me, along with someone like Abraham, neither of whom have been good enough for God, who is perfect, how can it be possible that we can be declared right, declared good, declared holy or sinless, righteous? How can that be? Well, because, point three, I am free from the curse of the law, Because of Christ and not of works. Read verses 10 to 12 with me. For all who rely on the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law. For the righteous shall live by faith. For the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. You see, there's a problem. There is a law. There is a standard of rightness and goodness that has been given to us and put over us that we face every single day. And unfortunately, this law is all what humankind is judged against. And more unfortunately still for us, this law is fundamentally impossible to keep. And this next bit in Paul is is, is explaining this very point to these Christians in Galatia. Guys, I know what you're thinking. If we can only keep the law of God perfectly, we would be okay in front of God. We would be able to achieve righteousness because we've done everything in the law right. 
makes sense. The problem is, says Paul, the law itself says that can't happen. And Paul quotes the law here three times and makes three points from the Old Testament to show us why. Point one, in order to live by the law, you need to keep all of it. Verse 10, all who rely on the law are under a curse, for it is written in Deuteronomy chapter 27, that's from the book of the law, cursed be anyone who does not abide all the things written in the book of the law and do them. In other words, can you say to me and stand before God with a pure conscience and say, I have not broken one single law or one rule that God has laid out before me? I have had not one single errant thought, one minuscule moment of forgetfulness, not one hint of a double standard or a wrong motive. You know you can't, Paul says. So you're under a curse because you've broken the law. And the real kick in the teeth here is that the curse is not merely something hanging over us like a bad smell or a sign around our necks. No, it is Romans 6.23. The wages of sin is death. The curse of not keeping the law of God is that I die. Point two, this is not how the law works anyway, Paul says. Verse 11, now it's evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for it says in Habakkuk chapter 2, a prophet of the law, the righteous will live by faith. In other words, the description of the law itself says the measure of goodness of a person is not found in keeping the law. That just produces self-righteousness. What God requires is faith in him. And in any case, even if you try to keep the law, again, verse 10, you can't do it. And these two points are both true because point three, verse 12, the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does by them, does them, shall live by them. Now, the word law here is talking about what the Judaizers assumed the law was. In other words, we could read this as the way that you think the law worked by trying to climb it and compete with it and keep it, that doesn't produce faith. Rather, the one who does try to live by the law has to live in the light of what the law does with all its consequences. And that, without a sacrifice that you in the Old Testament always had to fall back on, only produces condemnation. In other words, the law does not give faith as you assumed, it only condemns. And the only way you actually managed to live under the law at all was because God had put in place a sacrificial system whereby blood was spilt for your wrongdoing. In summary, Paul levels a devastating critique against those who keep saying, you must keep the law to be a Christian, and it has three points. One, you can't do it. Two, that's not how the law works. And three, it does not produce faith. It never has. You have always needed a sacrifice. You will, Romans 3.23, fall so drastically short if you try to attempt it. That's so unfair. We can't win. We can't keep the law, we're doomed. If we tried to keep the law, we're doomed. Everything is stacked against us. And to make matters worse, we know that Paul's right. In our heart of hearts, we know that we're rule breakers by the way that we live, even in our best moments, the way that we privately think about people, the things that we do that go unnoticed that we know are wrong, the white lies, the gossip, the hatred, the greed, the jealousy. That's a problem. 
We are imperfect people shown up by the law to be lawbreakers, unable to help ourselves, unable to keep the law, and we want to know a good and perfect God. To do that, somehow, I need to be right, or righteous, or perfect. The law shows me that's physically impossible. The question still stands then. How is it that we can be called righteous if we are under this curse? How is it that Abraham was called righteous when he couldn't keep a law that wasn't even there? How is it I can be called righteous when I couldn't keep the law that was? Christ. Jesus Christ. God himself, he is the answer. Verses 13 to 14, read with me. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, curse is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles, so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Uh, Robin said we weren't allowed to quote C.S. Lewis anymore, but I'm gonna. He's not here. (laughs) When Edmund in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe is found to be the traitor that he is, the White Queen condemns him to death because he is cursed by the laws of magic in the land. But Aslan, the lion, the real king of Narnia, steps in as his substitute. Edmund goes free, Aslan hands himself over to the White Queen and she kills him on the stone table, taking the punishment that Edmund was meant to take. Life for life, death for death. But as we know, that night Aslan rose again from death with the words, what the Queen did not know, Lucy, was that there was a deeper magic. Here in Galatians we have two curses. I am under one that I cannot be freed from because I cannot keep the law. And with horror, I find that the curse of not keeping the law is death. I need, I desperately need someone who can take that curse from me. And we find out that there's another curse. Verse 13, the curse of someone who is hanged on a tree, or as is the translation, someone who is nailed to a cross. Enter Jesus Christ the Messiah, God himself come to earth as a man at Christmas. Like Edmund, I am found to be the traitor and the real king of heaven steps in as my substitute. Living the perfect life I couldn't live and hands himself over to a wooden cross, the cross that I should be hanging on. And he is nailed to it in the cruelest of deaths known to man. Life for life, death for death. And he takes the deeper curse for me. My curse is gone and it is placed on Jesus Christ. And at the same time, and here is the answer to our question, he is cursed and his righteousness, his perfectness is now placed on me. The greatest of exchanges. He takes my filth and my curse and he becomes a curse in death so that I can have his perfect righteousness. Now I can stand before a holy God. Because when God the Father looks at me, he sees the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And I have done nothing for it. The language here in verse 13 is transactional, isn't it? Christ redeemed us. That means he bought us back. There's a payment that has taken place. He has bought us back from the curse of law-breaking by paying with his very life. Do you fathom how much that cost Jesus? We are so, so expensive. 
We are so, so loved. That Christ the innocent, God's only son, would stoop so low in order that he might take the punishment I deserve for my life and allow me to go free. How unfair is that? Galatians 2.21, I do not nullify the grace of God, for it is righteousness. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. For those who who are Christians, don't let that be the case. Don't let the unimaginable inconvenience of God himself moving heaven and earth and sending his only son to die be lost on you. He found it incredibly convenient. That's what Paul is saying. Don't live according to the law. Live like you have been set free. You are no longer under the law. You are under grace. You have not achieved anything through works. You put your faith in Christ. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death, but finish that sentence. For the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. The Jews could only live in the light of the law because there was a sacrificial system that meant for every sin the blood of an animal was spilt and the life of an animal was spent. We can live free from the curse of the law because there was one final sacrifice where the blood of God's Son himself was spilt and the life of Jesus Christ was spent. And here's where we end, because that's a really important point. It's a free gift of God, this eternal life in Christ Jesus. If you don't know Jesus tonight, the question is, what do you make of all this? Do you believe that what Jesus did was true for you? Do you sense that this can't be all there is? Because it's so desperately difficult to life, and you don't buy the fact that life is rubbish and then we merely die. There must be more to life than this. And the Bible says there is. And the Bible says it's Jesus. And the Bible says that the effects of his death for you, that is eternal life with him, and also gives you a full life with him now. It is given to you as a free gift. Are you willing to accept it? If nothing else, forget everything I've said tonight. Can you honestly look at Jesus, a man who really lived according to historical records, who really died according to concrete eyewitness accounts, and a man who really rose from the dead and was seen by people, and say to that person, I'm not even remotely interested. I challenge you to read about him. Ask me questions about him at the end. See whether what I say stacks up with your experience of life, and whether what the Bible says about Jesus is plausible and credible. And if you are a Christian here tonight thinking that there must be more to life than living an emotionally fractured yo-yo-like spiritual experience, trying to please a changeable and demanding God day in, day out, well, the Bible says there is. It is faith in Christ. Meaning that you trust Jesus. You trust him to help you. You trust him that what he did on the cross was enough. And you simply need to rest in him. This is how Paul closes, verse 14. He died so that Jesus Christ, the blessing of Abraham, might come to the Gentiles so that we we might receive the promised spirit through faith. You see, the promise of Abraham was not just the land. 
It was Jesus Christ himself. Jesus was the seed of Abraham. Jesus came from the line of Abraham. And it was Jesus who was going to be the blessing to the nations. And when I put my faith in Christ, I don't just become a son of Abraham. I also become a son of Christ. And with Christ's righteousness now on me, I am a chip off his block. I don't just look like Abraham anymore. I now look like Jesus himself. I am a child of the promise. I am a child of Christ. To be a Christian, it has to be by faith alone in Christ. It cannot be by works of the law Having started in the Spirit, I also continue in the Spirit in my everyday life through faith in Christ and not by my works. I am a mess if I try. I am a son of Abraham through faith in Christ and not by my works. I am cut off from the promise if I try. And I am given righteousness and therefore delivered from the curse of the law through faith in Christ and not by my works. I am lost for eternity if I try. The law does nothing for me except condemn me. Christ does everything for me and sets me free. I am crucified with Christ. It is I no longer who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Let's pray together as we close. Heavenly Father, this is astonishing stuff. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you sent your son Jesus to die for us. Lord, we are pitiful and we are broken and sometimes we are real messes and you saved us despite ourselves. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you made yourself known through Jesus and that he died so that I might live. Thank you that his righteousness, his goodness, his perfectness is placed on me so that when you look at me, you don't see my filthy state. You see the glory of Jesus Christ and his rightness. Heavenly Father, thank you that we have been fully justified in Christ. Lord, help us to live like that is true. Forgive us when we slip into legalism. Forgive us when we think that what we do really changes our status before you. Heavenly Father, help us to live good works. Help us to to search for justice. Help us to do things well because we are safe in Christ already. Heavenly Father, help us to live a life that is wanting to tell people about you because this is such good news. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would not diminish the impacts of the cross on our lives. Heavenly Father, every morning and every evening, may it be radically important to us. We thank you. We give you all the glory. In the mighty name of your precious Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.